You're listening to a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit. To help us unpack this session, our next moderator is one of Australia's most respected journalists, having been awarded six Walkley Awards during his long, fruitful and prestigious career. Please give a very warm welcome to the one and only Kerry O'Brien. I'll start here and then move over with our terrific panellists. And first I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners whose land we're meeting on today and pay my respects uh, to elders past, present and emerging. Everybody knows we're living in a sick democracy with failures of leadership in government that have become downright embarrassing and the pathetic lack of action on climate change has become the kind of totemic emblem of those failures. And the biggest failure of all, in fact, the one that is going to cost us dearly, climate change. I was a correspondent in America in the early 80s when I first reported on what was then called the greenhouse effect. In the early 90s, I did my first late-line debates on climate change, and I've looked, at the back, looked back at them fairly recently, and I was sorry I did in a way, because it's depressing to reflect on how little distance we've travelled in nearly 40 years of trying to grapple with what has become one of the greatest challenges of human history. So the question for this panel at what is clearly a low point in the quality of our politics and the health of our democracy, is how we can reverse the trend, actually meet the climate change challenge, and maybe even use it to rediscover some democratic mojo. Two of our panelists have seen, seen the failures from inside the system, and the third is a fresh voice who achieved a remarkable victory, defeating a former prime minister in the process, mostly on the promise of dealing with climate change. I think Zali would like you to join her in the parliament. <laughs> John Hewson was an academic economist who co-founded Macquarie Bank and who by all the canons of political science should have replaced Paul Keating as Prime Minister in 1993 and still bears the scars. <laughs> He's now back in academia on many boards and uh, thankfully is an ardent campaigner for genuine action to deal with the climate change emergency. Peter Garrett is the midnight oil frontman and ardent environmental activist who came inside the political tent under the Labor banner and was a cabinet minister in the Rudd and Gillard governments through all the ups and downs of their climate policy struggles and he also bears the scars. And Zali Stegel, the former Olympic skier who blazed a trail for Australian women at the Winter Olympics as this country's first individual medalist, first female medalist and a world championship gold medalist and then blazed a similar trail through the gold-plated Sydney Liberal seat of Warringah as an independent promising action on climate change. And, and leaving that political career of Tony Abbott in tatters. She's actually... <laughs> You've got to spread this around a bit. <laughs> Uh, and on Monday, uh, Zali unveiled a private member's bill which would enshrine in law the goals of the Paris Agreement and commit Australia to zero emissions by 2050. And, and Zali's scars are not yet evident. So this conversation is not about climate change science, it's about a political system in this country that has converted the greatest moral challenge of our time into the greatest policy failure of our time and how we might restore some health to our democracy. So I'm going to come over and join the panellists. Uh, my first question is directed to John. Um, I don't want to dwell on the past here, John. But you uh, will. But we, do have to, <laughs> but we do have to learn from it. Uh, so what were the lessons you learnt from your time inside the system because I can remember you standing up there on the night you became leader of the Liberal Party saying in your first press conference that things were going to be different. You weren't a politician. You were going to play the game 
in, uh, these are, this is my paraphrase now, perhaps a more truthful, a more credible way. That's how you started. So, so what were the lessons you learned and what has happened to your side of politics since? Well, I think as leader of the opposition, I had a very different approach in the sense that I thought when we disagreed with the government, we should argue the case against what they wanted to do on evidence. But uh, if we could get out in front on an issue and try and set the agenda and make it easy for them to govern, then we had that responsibility. It wasn't, an ad, to me, an adversarial game. I never forget when I lost in, 80, in 93, Keating took me aside on the first day back to Parliament. And he said uh, that, uh, you know, how much he liked me and respected me and how sorry he was and all that sort of stuff, which made me feel particularly nervous. But then, <laughs> then, then he said, look, I had to understand that politics to him was just a game and he would say or do whatever he had to to win. And he'd certainly done that. Passed fake legislation, changed his position on GST. And I'd never thought of politics as a game. I thought it was a responsible process in governing the country in the national interest, as naive as I was. <clears throat> And, um, you know, so we did, we had no policy credibility, as you said, on the first day. So we went to a very large reform agenda in every area of public policy, including the environment, where we had a very significant policy, building on our success from Kyoto, uh, to say, look, let's cut emissions by 20% by the year 2000 off a 1990 base. Wasn't controversial, didn't feature in the election campaign, uh, but, uh, I think back now and think if we'd done 10% a decade for each of the last three decades, our emissions level today would be about half what it needs to be at Paris. We'd have much lower electricity and gas prices. So, I mean, what did I learn from all that? I still think we have a responsibility as members of parliament to, to um, contribute to a better form of government. Unfortunately, my old press secretary, who you've mentioned a couple of times, member for Warringah, made politics a completely adversarial game. He, his strategy was to oppose everything that Rudd or Gillard wanted to do. And he just turned that into an art form. Uh, and uh, that's done a lot of damage. And so in the climate debate, instead of us working together uh, in a bipartisan way in the national interest, we've had pointless point scoring over several decades now uh, to the point where you know, the bottom line is that the implicit carbon price and all that's been much higher than it would, needed, would have needed to be. You're paying much higher electricity and gas prices than you would otherwise need to do. And you've lost billions of dollars of investment and uh, I think hundreds of thousands of jobs by not recognising we could have led this whole process in this country. We could be out in front in so many areas with a capacity not just to deal with our climate challenge here, which is one of the most significant, I think, in the world, but uh, we can actually develop an export capacity in terms of renewable energy and hydrogen and so on, which uh, would have seen us in a very different position. So the most recent COP, uh, we were determined to be the laggard of the world, holding the world uh, to, a, to a position which really they shouldn't, we shouldn't be in. And I just look back and say, how much have we squandered as a nation over this time? And how much more difficult has it become simply because of those short-term political games? But uh, so that was, Abbott is one you've singled out for having that kind of remorselessly negative approach, which worked for him in the end, if power was the objective. But, no. uh, but what about now? How in a nutshell do you describe the state of the party you once led and, and is it simply that they have been caught in that grip of negativity or are they really caught uh, by, uh, by vested interests? Are they caught by a, a rump on the far right in their party? What has happened to the Liberal Party that you were in? Oh, you've just listed the main factors, I think. Um, they have um, certainly put themselves in a ridiculous position as far as uh, responsible government's concerned. Uh, over the years, of course, you've attracted pretty much the wrong people into Parliament, people who bring, didn't bring any particular experience, no genuine commitment to good government. I mean, the pinnacle is to win pre-selection and get in there and tear the stuffing out of the other side. Uh, that's, what, that's not what government should be about. And so you get the worst manifestations of that now. You get, you get a small group of people who I think should have just been called out on day one, but, you know, small people dictating, you know, going out of the party room, calling a press conference, saying how they rolled the government, um, you know, threatening to build coal-fired power stations that nobody else in the right mind would build, 
uh, you know, these sort of issues are, are now um, the essence of their game. It's not about governing. It's not about de delivering outcomes. And, you know, I get so offended when I hear that, you know, when a member of parliament will say, I'm here for, to make a difference. Uh, and that means basically to make a difference for themselves personally, not for the country. And then secondly, I'm here because I want to you know, live a better world to my children and grandchildren. And yet you take a position on climate, which is absolutely destroying the opportunities for your children and grandchildren. So I just think that uh, we are in a parlous position. Uh, Zali's bill, you know, it will be debated obviously for some time. But as, if I was in Morrison's position now, uh, having performed so badly through the bushfires and, and uh, through the, the drought and not having a clear-cut position on anything except objection and opposition, I would see her bill as a get-out-of-jail-free card, not only from his own personal point of view, but from the point of view of the country. But we, we'll, come, we'll come to that bill shortly, because I think, I think that, that will help, I think, us to distill the state of play today and what, what you might want to happen and what is most likely to happen. But John, in terms of our understanding of why leadership these days is more associated with failure than success, in terms of what leadership is supposed to be about, and that the state of our democracy, I think, without being a beat up, is parlous. Trying to understand the forces outside this kind of the culture of negativity that you talk about and defensiveness in the end, what about, uh, what about the vested interests, the power of vested interests from outside, those, the, the lobbyists, uh, yeah. that, that, that really, uh, one way or another, have a hold here and there, if not totally, on both parties, and what is tied to that, which is the, the remorseless hunger uh, within the major parties particularly for funding. So political donations, those things going hand in hand. Yes, I mean, if you look at Morrison, he actually runs on prejudice, not analysis or evidence. He's the guy that held up the lump of coal because he believes that. He's got a staff around him that's got, I think, four or five key staff members that are ex-coal executives. Um, one was the chief of staff, used to be head of the mining council. The party's heavily dependent on fossil fuel donations. Got a couple of ministers that got strong party links to the coal industry and so on. And uh, so I, I think it's very difficult to see how you're going to change that without some systemic change that goes beyond this issue. And uh, I've been saying a lot recently about how we should set out to clean up politics, really go to the issue of campaign funding. And, and I think in the end, although I don't particularly like it, it should be public funded. And any administrative money that are raised by either party should be a, a declared in real time online, so everyone knows. Clean up lobbying. Um, I, I also think. I also think that, you know, we have truth in advertising laws. Apply them to politics and put a limit on campaign funding. Um, we have laws that in the business community, in particular, for false, misleading, and deceptive comment con conduct introduce them to politics, hold people accountable for what they say. And then I think, uh, you know, as we've seen in the sports short and, and a whole host of other examples, we need, we need a national ICAC, a national independent commission against corruption so that there is an overarching independent authority over this country. And then... <laughs> and then, finally, before I move on, uh, the Murdoch factor. And speaking, speaking as a journalist, I've never been paranoid about Rupert. I don't have any personal view one way or the other about the man. What I am concerned about is that I think he represents a fundamentally anti-democratic uh, part of this country's fabric and has done probably for the last 10 or 15 years where his, his presence and that kind of party line, which I think has tended to shut down debate uh, at times, uh, where do you rate that in, in, it's in, a significant in, the, in what you put? Yeah. A significant factor because he has actually been able to influence public opinion through the Australian, the Telegraph, the, the range of Murdoch newspapers. I mean, the Sky Network, um, you know, you now have what we refer nicely to as the monsters after dark. All those that come on the air after six o'clock at night and they're totally anti-climate change and to mostly totally anti-sensible common sense government. 
I mean, that's a big impact in a small country like this. I was delighted when James, one of his sons, came out recently and almost apologised for the poor coverage of the climate issue. I've been saying to Zali, maybe she get James to sign up on this bill. At least you might start to weaken the, the position of the media, but they're feeling a bit guilty now. They are backing off, but they've run the most unbelievable rubbish in the newspaper attacking the issue of climate change, misrepresenting the facts time and time again. So yes, it's a significant factor, which um, you know a lot of others have taken their lead off, unfortunately, hmm. over February to that time. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I think that is going to change because you can't go on in the media defending the indefensible. Okay. They're losing circulation. Peter, um, I know that you agonised for quite a while before you, uh, before you finally took a deep breath and stepped inside the Labor tent to try to, to, try to act on your beliefs and your, your political passions from within the system rather than without. So uh, we know that you bear your scars from that experience. You had six years in government. You had six years as a minister with both Rudd and Gillard. Um, so what, what were the lessons you learnt from that? And then I'll ask what your party is today compared to what it was. And do you understand what's happened with that party? Uh, well, thanks, Kerry. So some people would know um, I'm extremely proud of the fact that I was able to serve at that level for that period of time. Uh, I think the, the Gillard government in particular will be judged um, kindly by history in terms of the amount of legislation that was passed and the good things that were done. And I'm not going to turn this into a, uh, an opportunity to um, essentially re-prosecute or, or, or re-hype those issues, whether it's education or disability and the like. Uh, one thing I would say is that this particular debate, and I know for John and probably for all of us in different ways, has a much higher degree of poignancy than others though. Um, not because of the scars of being in the Labor Party and uh, having to deal with Rudd as a Prime Minister and being a loyal member and, and all that went with that. I mean, I ended up um, as a school education minister. We had a great education reform, the Gonski reforms. And, you know, if you'd only ever done that, you could walk away feeling like you'd done a bit. But more to the point, I was the climate change shadow minister before we, be, uh, we came into government and working with my colleagues and staff and receiving the input from scientists and other experts we had developed a comprehensive policy. Uh, we did have uh, a price on carbon ready to go, and, uh, and again, without relitigating, we know that um, the Green Party and uh, the Conservatives decided to oppose it. And that delayed us a little, and then we had another go, and that was under Prime Minister Gillard. And as I said when I was uh, giving my address yesterday, Kerry, here, the one thing about it is that it worked. Mm. Um, and it really did work properly. And it was well thought through, and we received the good advice from the Australian Public Service, from Treasury officials. They knew what was going on. Um, sensible parts of business were prepared to give it a run. They didn't suffer anything like the, the, the shocks that they thought they were going to in terms of cost. Mm. And in terms of revenue, it did its job, and emissions came down. So, you know, as a member of a government that was a part of that, and then, of course, it was destroyed by, um, you know, the horn-rimmed devil that Zali vanquished not that long ago. So, from that point of view, uh, I could see that decent, strong public policy that I'd campaigned in when I was at ACF and an activist on the other side of the fence could actually work. And for me, you know, as a policy wonk and a real political nerd who's been in this stuff forever, it was a hallelujah moment. Mm. I mean, we actually can do it. The country's not that bad after all, you know. But Peter, uh, and, and again, we're not going to get bogged down in this, but, I, but let me complete the record with regard to Julia Gillard and the ETS. Um, the fact is that she had promised going into the election that there would not be. And, uh, and my memory of it is that the main, if not the only reason that she was drawn to introduce that legislation was because the Greens insisted on it as part of their agreement to support Labor. So that's, that's that part. The, the, the other, the great opportunity that was lost, it seems to me, uh, was where Rudd, having declared the moral, the moral um, challenge of our time, um, he has the opportunity of a bipartisan ETS if he can find enough common ground with Turnbull to allow Turnbull to get it through his party room. 
Now, there was a certain point, and you would remember this, where Greg Combe was the minister assisting Penny Wong. Penny Wong was the climate minister. Uh, Greg Combe was assisting her. The two climate change ministers were completely confused in that process where Turnbull is trying to hold his party together to support an ETS through the parliament and, and uh, Combe and Penny Wong are having conversations to the effect of, do you understand what Kevin wants? Does he want us to get an ETS bill through the parliament or does he want to destroy Malcolm Turnbull? So in other words, he was playing two games and the end result was you got nothing. Well, um, we, we could have a really good debate and discussion about this particular point, but I, I do know that time will, will, yeah. will, will run over us. So whether it was a function of Rudd's short-term political ambitions or whether it was a function of that as well as wanting to secure the legislation and the agenda to which the Cabinet and the party and the country we're supportive of is frankly immaterial. Um, what he should have done is he should have gone to a double dissolution and he should have yeah. tested that the challenge that this is the greatest moral challenge of our time with the people. Perhaps we would have won and perhaps we wouldn't have and I don't know whether this has been canvassed publicly but certainly some of us were of that view that that's what you do. So, yeah, there's plenty of scars from that period of politics and some of the things that uh, John Hewson has said uh, tonight rang a bell truly with me. And I know we're going to discuss it more in greater detail, but there's one thing I do really wanted to communicate through you, Kerry, again, and that's this. Yes, we do have um, significant issues standing in front of us in terms of the way in which the modern political parties operate, apparatchiks, short-termism and the like. Yes, we've got uh, independents who occasionally are able to break through, but they, they are by far the minority at this point in time. Yes, we've got the issue of lobbyists trawling the, the, the halls of power. But, you know, when I was climate change... a lot change, of money. Yeah but, when I was climate yeah, but when I was climate change shadow, and even in my other jobs, I would see lobbyists and I would see others. I wouldn't expect people to pay to have to come and see me as a minister. And I wasn't the only minister that did that. Of course, lobbying is it's a part and parcel of the political process. What does make a big difference, which we don't see and we haven't seen up to now, but we're starting to see, both from this event, from the school strikes for climate and from the other public activity, is the mobilisation of public opinion, which takes politicians to a place that they haven't been before. And the one thing I think that we've left out here is when we think about what politicians take a look at, they take a look at the public opinion polls. In fact, they're often criticised for being driven by them. Well, in this case, the opinion polls got it wrong too. Well, that, that, that can happen. But the point I'm making is that I'm making a broader point, and that is when, when the climate crisis is recognised to the degree of seriousness that people in this room recognise it by a greater number of Australians, when those Australians are fronting up not to tell their politicians that they're hopeless or that the system's broken down or why won't they do this and that, but fronting up to tell them I want you to represent my views on this. I'm not going away until you do. And until every politician in the House, whether it's by debating Zali's bill and the discussion that happens then or subsequently, recognises that this has become the most important issue for their constituents, I don't think we're going to see the change that we're after. And that's the part of democracy that we also need to really innovate. Strong democracy. Strong democracy requires a strong opposition as well as hopefully a strong government, a strong well-intentioned government. But uh, so how do you assess the state of the Labor Party after the leadership change? Do you think that, uh, that Australians are clear on, what, um, on where Labor stands on climate change? I mean, I was rather struck at the weird contrast of the east coast of Australia in flames, uh, Australians expressing real anger about a lack of climate change action and, uh, and Anthony Albanese, at almost that precise moment, was endeavouring to explain how his party was going to get closer to coal. Yeah, well, look... Uh, I think you're right, and, and I've already said that I think that that's the most important threshold issue for both the leader and the caucus to consider in the shadow cabinet. And I mean, McAuliffe had something on ABC the other night which summed it up brilliantly. And no, no wonder people are confused and they need to arrive at the point of clarity. It's early days and they have, as we know, and as I know only too well, a substantial voting block in the Labor Party conference, 
which has to validate essentially big policy changes from the union movement. And some of the union movement are quite focused on this issue and as yet haven't reached the point of considering what, say, a transition would look like. But it's early days, Kerry. Uh, well, in, in those early days, Peter, and I don't know how closely you're watching politics at the moment, but I imagine you would have seen the story about this strange new caucus within Labor of 20 politicians having meals and uh, discussions in cafes uh, about how to keep the party straight on, on, uh, on climate change, and they just happen to be people like Joel Fitzgibbon, uh, whose position on coal is, is almost in line with Scott Morrison's, you get the impression. What, I mean, what does that say about the Labor Party? Well, look, I've already addressed the Labor Party Environment Action Network on this matter and said that I think that the cabinet, the shadow cabinet, should really be saying to Fitzgibbon, you've got to abide by Labor Party policy, not be pushing your own barrows on mm. this issue. But the other side of it, the other side of it is that I'm not being flippant, is that, you know what, it sort of went that way for me, to be honest. It's not central to what is going to happen both within and externally to Labor and it's not central to what's going to happen in the political debate running up to the next election. 20, 20 MPs meeting privately to, to, to discuss how to keep the party in a certain place on climate change doesn't strike me as a, as a sort of flimsy issue. It strikes me as potentially quite serious for the party. Well, you, you, and, I, you and I have uh, engaged with one another many times yeah. over the years, and we respect one another a lot, but... And, and but you you're, you're, you're asking the right question, but, but I'm giving my honest answer, yeah, and that is okay. that, yeah, I mean, I don't, let me, let me put the answer another way, with all respect to those parties, I don't look at them seeing a lot of political heavy hitters, you know. Okay. Zali. <laughs> okay. When you took the leap into the unstable world of the independent politician, what was it that pushed you over the top uh, in declaring war on your own Liberal Party? Uh, well, I've never been a member of a party, so I think, no, if anything, I represent, I think, what are many, many people out there in Australia that are really tired of the politics of this. There's been so much debate, and we do hear, I think, the old school views of uh, everyone's tried, everyone looks back and tries to look at that blame game. So, for me, I think I, w I am, I stepped out of my normal life to enter into this life because I want to find solutions. I've had enough of hearing about who did it right or wrong and why didn't we get there. Mm. It's a new decade. We have to come up with new solutions. Mm. I think you... So I stand corrected that it was your party, but you identified yourself as a, as a Liberal voter, I think. Yeah. I, I, anyway. I, I identify in the centre. I'm, yeah. I am fiscally conservative. There's many elements in Labor policy I don't agree with. Uh, but I think like many in Warringah and, and around Australia, I do identify with we have to address climate change. And again, I don't agree that climate change is an issue of left or right. I fundamentally disagree with that. It is ultimately an issue of our future. Um, ironically, it should be the biggest, you know, from a conservative point of view, uh, worrying about our legacy for the future should be the, the prime motivator. But from my point of view as a mum, uh, I've got kids, I'm worried about their future, I think about our legacy and our impact, uh, and I think it's undoubtedly, uh, it is the issue of our time, but it's our safety. This is, we, we don't have a debate over do we have a defence force? Of course we keep Australia safe if we were ever under attack. Well, we're under attack from nature when it comes to this because we have threatened nature to the mm. edge. So we should be bipartisan, we should be united in addressing that threat. So arriving in Canberra with that, with that ambition to try to make a difference, not necessarily within that system. You are within the system, but you're not of it. So what, 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 what is your summary of the state of the place after nine months? Look, uh, it's been really interesting because I, I wouldn't describe myself as a political beast. I got on with my life. I was an athlete. I was a lawyer, a mum, you know, getting on with my life. But observing how Canberra works, I'm actually horrified at how much both sides of politics think it's a game. They think it's a game. Your future is a game, a power play. 
uh, and that is really concerning. It's not about the ideology. It's not about how can I have uh, leave the world a better place? How can I make sure our future is more secure, uh, our economy is stronger? It is always about wedging the other side. So instead of looking at sensible policy and working together, they are looking at point scoring, which I really uh, I disagree with and I think so many Australians disagree with. So, so what gives your private member's bill uh, a credibility on climate change, a greater credibility uh, than what uh, then um, then exists at, 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 with the both major parties, and what is at its core that gives you any hope of getting it through that extremely cynical and compromised parliament? Yeah, look. We, we put a lot of thought into how do we progress this debate. It's been so toxic. And you do go to look at countries where they've succeeded. Where has it worked? The Climate Change Act that was passed in 2008 in the UK has been in operation for 10 years, and it is established as a framework that delivers results. It's not prescriptive, so it allows government to come up with its plan and the opposition to put forward a different plan come election time. Why do I think it's different? Because I think I represent people, ordinary people who want a solution. Uh, and I am, a, as an independent, I don't have a party machine behind me, I don't have vested interests. But what I do have is the ability to put forward a plan. Uh, it's then up to the Australian people to make it happen, ultimately by putting pressure on the political system. Uh, that's why we've got uh, our website, the climateactnow.com.au, and register your vote. Go there. Uh, it gives you the means and mechanisms to uh, write a letter to your MP, how do you spread the word? If you are in a corporation, spread it to your network, no matter internally, externally, everyone has power. Why is it different? Because it, it really, there is nothing in it that is uh, not acceptable to both sides of politics. At state level, both coalition governments and Labor governments have very similar policies. We've got all territories and states committed in policy or legislation to a net zero by 2050. So there should not even be a debate. I mean, the question to the Prime Minister and the opposition leader is, why wouldn't you support this? If you are committed to the Paris Agreement, then you are committed to, to this, this goal, this target. So the question is, if not this, then what? Because why aren't you there? Now, there is no criticism of the bill today. What there is, I think, is political manoeuvring. Uh, because no one, they're really thinking about how are they going to use it for a win or a loss? How do they win back Warringah? How do you not put at risk other moderate seats where we know people want change and greater policy? So again, I rely on all the Australian people that want action on climate change. So, you have the power. So it is only a few days since you unveiled the draft bill. Um, do you have any sense of the kind of passage you might expect? How much time are you going to be allowed to have to actually do what you really want, which is to mobilise people against those forces inside the parliament who do not want to be seen to be led by the nose by an independent, particularly one who knocked off one of their former prime ministers? Sure. Look, if there's one thing I've learned is it's a very complicated game of chess, that's for sure. Um, but if there's one thing I know with absolute certainty, this is not something anyone can quit. This is not something that's going away and we will keep going. So yes, it has a process. So the bill will be introduced as a private member's bill on the 23rd of March. It then sits on the notice paper. It can go to committee. It can be reintroduced in the Senate. We will be uh, undertaking through uh, meetings, lobbying, public support, getting civil society behind it. We've got the business council, we've got industry groups, insurers. I need all face uh, religious organisations. I need regional Australia. I need agriculture. I need the health sector, education sector. Everyone who cares has to speak up. We are at the beginning of a new decade. We can't waste any more time. You have a sensible solution on the table. Make it happen. So, <laughs> pressure is going on the government to commit to a policy of zero emissions by 2050, which is a part of your bill, which was a part of, is a part of, uh, of the British government's pathway. 
Um, but of course, there's, uh, there, again, cynicism unfortunately rears its head. There would be a number of politicians who would be quite comfortable about a, uh, a committing to a target that's 30 years away, uh, unless there are elements built in that are going to keep them honest every inch of the way. Absolutely, and that's a key part of the Climate Change Act uh, that's being proposed. It has five-year emission reduction budgets. Uh, there is advice by an independent climate change commission. Now, we all have faith in uh, the RBA, uh, sorry, in the Reserve Bank in terms of setting our pathway, ensuring viability, uh, and we need that on climate. This impacts so many areas of our, of, of our economy, of industry. So an independent climate change commission is key in the risk assessments and advising the minister. But of course, it is the role of government to come up with a plan. So there are five-year emission reduction uh, budgets that need to be set and then a plan to address them. Uh, we have three-year election terms, which is very short and I would argue for fixed terms, but if there is a silver lining to our short uh, electoral cycle is that there is very quick accountability with the Australian people and if we can have a much clearer set of accounting and of keeping track of how we're going from a policy point of view, from a risk management point of view, uh, from climate impacts, I believe the Australian people are now very aware. If this decade is in fact the decade of, I believe, uh, the Australian pe people being uh, aware and informed because they can do so independently. Okay, so we're going to open it up. We've spoken, we've heard from each of you separately now. Let's have the conversation. So um, John and Peter, what do you think are the biggest impediments to, to um, Zali's bill? And uh, in the end, if we accept the real politique that, uh, that uh, it'll be a big enough hurdle for Labor to bring itself to accept it, there'll be another hurdle getting enough libs across the line to support it and get it through the rips. But what are the... What are the uh, uh, I wonder whether it is enough that in the process, Zali, I mean, what odds do you give Zali being able to mobilise enough public opinion to affect the outcome? John? Well, I tend to be an optimist on this. I do think it's possible to build broad-based um, constituency of stakeholders uh, that would uh, drive the end, in the end the government to actually take it seriously. See, my point is it's no skin off Morrison's nose to have a conscience vote and let everybody, each member, be held publicly accountable. But, their, but their whole culture is against that, John. I know their culture is against it, but uh, the, 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 and look, their natural inclination, their prejudice will be not to do it, not to give Zali a win, whether it's about winning Moringa back or whether it's uh, you know, just being exposed as not having a policy in these areas. But having said that, if you build full-scale community support across civil society, all the business teams and leaders, some of the union leaders, past or present, some of the past politicians, uh, all levels of civil society, the churches, uh, uh, welfare groups, whatever. If you get that sort of constituency and you're going to have to work hard and long to get it, I think the government will in the end have to pay attention to that. Now you've got a time, you've got a few months to actually build that. It's, uh, it's, uh, you need a whole you know, set of missionaries to get out there and argue the case at all levels of the Australian community. And uh, I think it's possible. And in circumstances where you are on the side of right, I mean, only a fool would take the other side these days. The evidence is overwhelming. A lot of fools. The challenge. Well, I'll, I'll rephrase that. There's a few fools with very loud voices. Yeah, but, you know, you call them out. I mean, there's a handful of people in the government that really should have been tagged right at the beginning and not let run and not build their own persona in the... In the, in the um, you know, look at a Craig Kelly, for example. I mean, they had a Must unique I? opportunity to let him go. His electorate didn't want him. And Morrison stepped in and confirmed his pre-selection, and now he's living with something he created. And Craig's going to have to cope with the fact that the Parliament House now is 100% renewable. <laughs> but I think that you can call them out and, and tag them for what they are and make them, you know... They've got, they've got a position they really can't defend. They run on fear and anxiety and... But they're not, they're, not, uh, they're not actually handicapped by the facts. No, there's a bit of Trump there, but, um, you know, they don't... They, uh, they, and they see that, but they have to be held accountable for the facts. And, um, you know, in time, I think you can win that argument. I mean, I failed and I didn't get a big policy through. I didn't get all those facts out there. 
but I don't give up we on the fact that we can do it. 300 pages. <laughs> that's, that's another story. I think it was thousands, but we won't count them. Peter. Uh, so um, I really applaud both John's optimism and um, Zali for bringing this into the parliament because from my point of view, anything and everything that we can do at this stage, both to advance the debate, uh, to make parliamentarians focus on the climate crisis and to essentially start to really have a vigorous and open public discussion about what we need to do as a nation is worthwhile. Uh, but having given with one hand, I'm about to take away with the other, I'm afraid. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to read the bill fully, so I don't want to speak to it in substance. But uh, one of the reasons that we're here today is because we've got a climate emergency and we have to be able to drive out of the political system the immediate and urgent steps and commitments. The long term is okay, but it's the short term that's the most important. And anything that does other than that and anything that is other than supported by the national government to do that is going to be very difficult to prosecute. I don't know about uh, the Liberal Party members, whether they'll come across to the other side with you. I would be surprised, putting my politician's hat on, that they'll want to give you a free kick, but I'd love to be surprised on that front. And for Labor, I have no idea what the position will be, but um, the history of private members' bills generally becoming law, with some exceptions, is a pretty poor one. It's an opportunity to ventilate and to debate. Now, Zali's quite right to put it to you strongly and to see whether or not she can build a constituency of centralised interest, lobby, force, public voices and so on and so forth to bring this to bear. Uh, it would be good if that were to happen because then at least it could get reviewed to a committee uh, and it could be considered. Whether or not the Prime Minister of the day is ready to do that, I know. But let's be very clear about this part of it. As I understand it, there's nothing exceptional in this bill. I'm not that confident, to be honest with you, that uh, Boris Johnson is going to meet his targets and do what he said he'd do under the Act that's passed there as well. And I think that this as a mechanism for stimulating and confronting people with this issue and recognising that it is a meta issue is crucial. And as my colleague Paul Gilding has said, I think in here to you now, the key thing here is it's not just considered as another issue. Not one to sit on the floor of the parliament to be pushed around from one side to the other, not to be considered in terms of political advantage, how Morrison looks or how Albanese looks or, or what have you, but to be considered, is this the best way we can do what we need to do? So from that point of view, good to see it in there. From the point of view of real politic, I'm not sure that it'll go much further, but wait and see. Yeah, look, it's really interesting how stuck everyone is on that part, as opposed to you know, and as, as an ex-barrister, having attended a lot of mediations, I know I was telling you about this before, you enter into mediations with both parties so firmly in their camp, so absolutely willing to say the other side is so wrong and there's nothing. But what a good mediator does is you find the common ground, you find what you can at least agree on and build from there. And that's what we're trying to do. Well, with the greatest of respect, this is not a mediation, uh, and to see it as such, I think, you know, I, as I say, I genuinely wish you well on it, but it's not a mediation. Um, the, calculation, the calculation from political leaders in the parliament will be a political calculation, and to that extent, whilst that's a persuasive argument in this hall, it's not going to be a persuasive argument in the parliament. Well, where, what it is persuading in Parliament, and it's interesting, a lot of people have asked me, what, how have you found Parliament? What's it like? You know, are you enjoying it? Um, if there's one resounding thing that comes in common from all MPs I've talked to, they worry about having a job in two years' time. They absolutely worry about their re-election and what's going to impact it. And that is all of you, and that is all the people that we need to reach out through the website. So, again... You do have power. Um, you look, you know, we, we are faced with a coalition government for the next two years, and the pillars, ideology pillars of the, of the coalition are security and safety, keeping you safe, keeping Australians safe, and sensible economic management of our economy. Now, on both those fronts, we know climate change is the biggest challenge. It will be the biggest security threat. We've had a summer of seeing our communities evacuated from beaches, communities raised to the ground, kids having to go to school with face masks on because air pollution is so bad, 
regional communities devastated by drought, and we have now the hit to the economy. We know the cost of impacts is great and will have a massive impact. So on both those fronts, I would soundly say it is in the coalition's imperative to support a good plan. The saddest, the saddest part of this whole sorry saga is that there was a moment in 2007 where both political leaders, Howard and Rudd, supported an emissions trading scheme. And somehow we collectively have managed to pedal backwards from all of that. John, how, do you actually understand how the Liberal Party came, how, how leaders, including Malcolm Turnbull, allowed themselves to be captured by a relatively small number of loud voices in their party from that kind of far right who were really unrepresentative of the broader electorate and unrepresentative of their own party as it had been. It's, in, it's significant that you picked 2007, but it showed how desperate Howard was facing mm. the reality that he was going to lose. And uh, he only expected, I think, to lose government. He didn't expect to lose Ben Long as well. But he, in, in the pressure of that circumstance, switched the party's position, supported an election, uh, emissions trading scheme, committed to doing it by 2010. Hmm. And, you reckon uh, he was giving himself and, enough and, wriggle and, room? You know, and that should all stem from the fact that he wouldn't ratify Kyoto. Yes. He got himself in a position where Rudd had a winning issue, a very good winning issue. And um, you, know, you would have thought that at that point, the party would have learned that that was the way to go. And I pick up the point that Peter made before about the Rudd era. I mean, I had a couple of meetings with Kevin in the run-up to the end of 2009. He was determined, he said, to have the green paper, then the white paper, then the legislation. And if it didn't go through the parliament, I'll dissolve both houses of parliament in early 2010 and uh, I'll drive it through. And I think that tragedy was he didn't do that in about February 2010. He might still be, heaven forbid, prime minister, if he had done that, because I think he would have won that election. And you would think in all that, that the, the message was clear to the party. But no, you went back to a period of negativity, you went back to a period of point scoring, and used the opportunities as they were presented in the circumstances, whether it was under Rudd or whether it was under Gillard, to actually run a massive negative campaign. And the tragedy is that, actually, that Abbott actually believes he won that election by opposing the carbon tax. Hmm. Not the fact that he destroyed the Rudd-Gillard government, uh, that he'd done an effective job as a negative campaigner, but he believed. And then, so that became, the, that became the, the modus operandi. Let's dismantle everything. And so he not only opposed the carbon tax, but he tried to close ARENA, he tried to close the CFC, uh, the Climate Change Authority, whatever it was, whatever element of the infrastructure that had been put in place, he was flat out trying to change. And as it turned out, a lot of it he couldn't change. Mm. But uh, that was the mood. And he took the business community with him. The Business Council endorsed him for that period, ran that campaign for him, opposing uh, renewable energy. Uh, so I think, you know, there's a lot, I remember of, it being a lot of Damascus Road conversions going uh, on right now. On. So uh, I won't respond specifically to all of that because this really is intricate detail and some of us have lived it very intensely. But just to make the point that at the last election, the election that Morrison wins, um, the data that I've seen back in terms of research about issues that were important to people, it was touted as a climate election and many people, particularly in Victoria, thought it was going to be the climate election. It was a climate election to the extent that it didn't mean that people voted because they felt that the climate policy was not strong enough. Um, the reasons that Labor lost have been canvassed elsewhere and there were other policies afloat and confusion about what people may or may not have been voting for and you had the Queensland factor. But the point is that the Labor policy was not perfect, but it was quite strong. It was quite a good policy. It was an advance on, on, on the coalition's policy, on Liberal policy. And no one was really campaigning vigorously in that election about that policy. They were campaigning about other things, loss of jobs, coal jobs in Queensland, uh, superannuation, uh, franking credits, and uh, you know, various things to do with uh, if you with own a house. With a leader who couldn't explain them. Yeah. So, and, well, and that's right. So, to that extent, it, it, it reinforces at least partly what I think Zali, the point that Zali is making, is that people are actually ready for it. And again, I'm coming back to this, this notion that we do rightly have problems with the way in which 
an imperfect parliamentary and major political party system in particular delivers the sort of things that we have an aspiration for, <clears throat> but they can be delivered nevertheless, um, provided that the, the effort and the impetus from us and the accountability that we need to hold politicians to is done. Just one quick point about winners and losers, because I can't help it, and John might not weigh into this, and I, I can't help it with Kerry here though either, and that is that we need a maturation in our political debate generally. <coughs> Because if all, the only way we ever see politics is blood sport, including the way in which it's covered, mm. including not by serious journos and serious um, That's um, all coverage. That's right. you can include me in that. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's, it's our maturing process here as Australians, just as it is with the issue of, of, you know, a treaty and reconciliation. I feel like we're on the cusp of that maturity, and, and this is a very good sense that people gathered here for it, and perhaps it's a maturity that will enter into the parliament where you'll find people actually walking across the other side of the house and saying, well, I think there's quite yeah. a bit in this bill, let's give it a go. That's where we need to be in terms of the, the heart of the nation. Okay, what you're also dealing with is a failure of media as much as you're dealing with a failure of politics. And that is another huge question about how we come back around from that. Zali, I'll, I'll, I'll give you one quick uh, response and then we're going to move to some questions from the audience. I, I was just going to say where we've moved since the election of May 19 is for a proportion of the population, there is a high concern with climate change impacts, but there, I think there was probably still a sense that it wasn't the most urgent concern. It was something that was still a problem for the future to be dealt with. And so the more uh, slow, maybe regressive approach that's currently in place uh, was maybe sufficient or appeasing that concern. What we've seen over summer is those impacts are now. We're experiencing it now. All of Ross Garneau's predictions are coming true. So for people, it's changed in that sense of urgency. Uh, the fact that businesses have got downturns, communities are impacted, this problem is real and it is now. And I think that has elevated it and there is an opportunity. It's a new decade and I do believe there is that opportunity to change course. We know there is uh, rebirth after bushfires in terms of our vegetation. Um, I think it's time for that to happen on policy. Okay. So I've got audience questions up here in our little uh, screen. Uh, and the first, and I'll, um, any, any, or, any, any of you who want to answer, feel free. Are fiscally conservative policies capable of addressing climate adequately? Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah. Sorry, Kerry, I might just jump in very quickly. Not sure what the person means by fiscally conservative, but if that means spending less, then the answer is no. Uh, we are going to have to spend money to address climate adequately. But the most important thing, as has been said, by, including by myself yesterday, is a serious price in the market. Uh, a serious carbon price will start to get it underway. Yeah, look, if you're a true conservative, you believe in, in small government, you believe in um, um, low levels of regulation, and you believe in relying on market forces wherever you can an overwhelming conservative case to put a price on carbon and get out of the way and see what change it makes. In the limited period we had a price on carbon, even though that structure that Gillard put in place was really, to some extent, misguided, it worked. It was working. And uh, so if you want to be a conservative in, in terms of the traditional definition, I think you've got every opportunity to contribute positively. Mm. Um, should we consider alternative government... Uh, sorry, Zali, did you want to say anything to that one? Well, I agree with both views, but I think what's interesting is our drawdown in terms of uh, over-emitting uh, from a, a, our, our carbon and, and emissions point of view is the biggest intergenerational debt that we will be passing on, and that has to be against any kind of conservative values. Should we... Should we consider alternative government political structures? Well, that is a big one. You mean get rid of the states? Um, do, you, do you mean go to a one-chamber parliament? I mean, that, that's a, a big theoretical one. Well, uh, I, I guess I'll jump in on this one, that I think we need more independence. Um, I think we need to... Of course to, you do. Well, again... Um, Within the existing political structures. 
our, our constitution does not refer to parties. It refers to representatives of electorates. It, rep it talks about forming government. Uh, I believe there is a conflict of interest by the party structure from an MP to their electorate, just as uh, as, a, as an advocate to the court, you really have to have that duty. I think MPs have a duty to their electorate, um, and that needs to be uh, really brought home. I just need to respond to that very quickly and just do a quick scenario. There's three or four parties in the parliament and one, two, three or four independents. Once the independents have sufficient numbers to influence the outcome in the parliament, they will become a party. It has happened since time immemorial and it will happen again. It's, it's always tempting to say that we, would, we should have a benevolent dictator as long as we can determine who that is. But having said that, what about just getting more women into parliament? And more women. <laughs> and I yeah. see some men clapping. Uh, no, not just in politics, in the bureaucracy, in all senior positions across, across our society. And you will get a fundamentally different position. Once again, I can't help but jumping in. This is going to be my job for the next nine minutes. I was lucky enough to be in a government where the Governor-General was a woman, the Prime Minister was a woman, the head of my department was a woman, my Chief of Staff was a woman, my Deputy Chief of Staff was a woman, the head of media was a woman, and my policy head was a woman, and all of the people working in my electorate office were women. I was happy. Just let me ponder that for a moment, Peter. So, do you, think, do you think the parliament might be a more moral place? And I don't mean that in, I mean that in terms of the standards of the parliament. And one of the questions that I'd like us to discuss, we might as well discuss it now, we've only got a few minutes left, is how do you, how do you, how do you function uh, in a parliament where uh, something like this, the Auditor General's report on the, the blatant sports rorts comes along and everybody in the party, from the, in, the, in the government, from the Prime Minister down, lifts it up and says, this white report is actually black. Well, you know, white is black. Well, actually, we've got the evidence that says it's not. No, 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 but it is. And, and there is a part of the media practice now, the practice of media management now, is when the really bad shit comes along uh, and you can't, you can't rebut it, uh, effectively in the immediate, you wait it out. And in the 24-hour cycle, even the journalists get bored and move on. Well, but one thing we're seeing with the sports rod is it's not moving on. The more we dig, the worse it gets, and the, 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 really the practice was appalling. But I have to be a little bit cynical because we've had both sides in government at various times and no one has implemented a National Integrity Commission. So, with respect, there has been opportunity. It was not taken. We know fossil fuel industry uh, donates to both major parties. So I am a little bit cynical when we now have one side calling for that National Integrity Commission. As a crossbencher, we are absolutely calling for it. Um, the trust in politics in Australia, I think, is at an all-time low. I'm appalled to see that something like community sports grants, where we're talking about the absolute foundation of our society, helping out kids and groups where volunteers is, uh, contribute so much was taken advantage of to such a level. Uh, we saw the outcry when the cricketers uh, cheated, you know, that went to the mole fabric mm. of the Australian fair play and fair go, and yet there is just none of that accountability from the government, which I think is appalling. It, it, you are bringing it into disrepute. Another question? What about more Indigenous voices in Parliament? Yes, yes and yes. Yeah, I think we're talking about big structural challenges like uh, climate change. One of the biggest uh, structural challenges is the proper recognition of our Indigenous heritage and giving them an effective voice in the Constitution and doing something about, genuine about disadvantage. And I don't understand how we keep fobbing it off. I uh, got really annoyed a couple of times when Morrison vote, vote, boasted, I stopped the boats. He has a very different view about the boats that arrived in 1788. <laughs> <laughs> and how sad to see uh, 
Australia's first Indigenous Minister for Indigenous Affairs muzzled virtually from the outset when the Uluru Statement comes on the books? Yeah, I think, um, again, Kerry, this is one of these things that goes right to the, to the heart of who we are as a nation, including recognising the First Nations. And uh, it, was really, um, it was really Malcolm Turnbull who essentially ran the line that the proposition from the Uluru Statement from the heart would mean that there was some kind of third chamber within the parliament or influencing the parliament. It was a profoundly dishonest intellectual argument and I thought, you know, to, to his great shame, to be frank. Uh, there are a lot of people of goodwill uh, on both sides of the house who would like to see greater Indigenous participation. You know, the vast majority of Australians plus want to see a relationships made right, our history given account to, and also the capacities and the abilities of First Nations peoples fully realised. Uh, I think it will be much to our advantage if we did have more uh, Aboriginal and Islander people in the parliament. I think those that are serving there are serving well, and I think uh, Minister Wyatt's position, as you quite rightly pointed out, is almost intolerable. And I do hope that people get behind the Uluru Statement of the Heart and understand what a significant document it actually was, because I think that could, that's, it's, it's a founding nation document for me, if we can really take it seriously. And we'll be watching very, very closely, I think, all of us, and really wanting to hold our leaders to account on that one. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Do you know that from the crossbench, we've actually we've put in a request and we've asked for there to at least be uh, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flag flown in the chamber, and we can't even get to that. Mm. So there's a long way to go. There's a question here. Uh, oh, I think this is what it is. The ambition of politicians, policymakers, still doesn't match climate science. Um, is this a part of the same question? How do you reconcile ambition with practicality and feasibility? There are possibly two questions. Let's just deal with this. How do we reconcile ambition with practicality and feasibility? Is this the old Jack Lang line, you know, if uh, politics was a horse race, you'd back the horse called self-interest? So I think the answer for me, again, and I'm just jumping in and I'll quickly, you know, obviously want others to, to, to be heard, uh, as you do, is to say that what is impractical about trying to address the climate crisis now. To me, it's the most practical and the most important issue that we have in front of us. And it's about time we started understanding that that's the issue and that our policymakers understand that what it is as well. And then you do see the onflow, the employment opportunities, the sense of security and safety and confidence that we're doing something decent with the world as opposed to letting it go into hell in a handbasket. Look, we've got, we've got uh, three odd minutes left. Uh, and one of the elements, we've kind of talked around it, but not addressed it directly, and that is the fundamental failure of leadership in modern politics. Um, if, we, if we are, and we're supposed to be on this panel, talking about how the, the deficit of quality in politics can be turned around, we have to understand where this failure, what this failure of leadership represents, how have our political parties allowed themselves to reach this state? That's if you agree with the premise. John, I mean, th there's got to be something fundamentally rotten in the system, hasn't there? If parties cannot, cannot produce a genuinely, genuine leaders with all the qualities of leadership, they're inspirational, they have passion and, and, and commitment about what they're, and conviction about what they're supposed to be espousing. Where are they? It seems that they think it's too risky to lead on any issue, to get out in front, to set a standard, to enforce it, whatever. <clears throat> and I think that's been a particular weakness. And the, behind that is, of course, the significant point that most people these days in politics, despite what they say publicly, are there for themselves. They put their own interests ahead of the national interest. Well, look at the National Party. They've got confused between national interest and national's interest. And that's what you get all the time. And so I think that, you know, it is, it is a challenge that uh, people are prepared to stand up. But having seen the circumstances of the last few months where Morrison was clearly behind on that issue, you would have thought he'd see that he was elected to lead, right? Not just to play games, obfuscate, make a mess day in, day out. He sort of started digging a hole. And, uh, you know, I think the first law of digging holes is when you get to the bottom, you stop digging. He's kept digging, and, and that's, that says that he doesn't see that the but, need is for leadership. But there is something fundamentally wrong in the culture of both the Liberal Party or the Liberal National Coalition and the Labor Party, surely, that is reflected by these leadership failures. 
Well, and, um, and how do you turn it around? Uh, I, I'd like to take a slightly longer view. I think we've been well served by leaders generally since Federation, notwithstanding the fact that we haven't addressed some really important, significant issues. And we've been poorly served, particularly in the toing and froing that we've witnessed over the last 10 years. And leaders either rise to the occasion because we as leaders encourage them to do it, or they have the capacity to do it. I would argue that uh, I served under two prime ministers. I think one of them was a good leader. I think Julie Gillard was a good leader. Um, I think there have been leaders on the other side of politics who I haven't agreed with, but who've led effectively. But you're right, Kerry, to pose the question to us, because we're now at this critical time where leadership is deficient, yeah. and yet where the, the need has never been greater. So we must be leaders to make them leaders. Peter, look, again, we're not going to get into an argument about this. Where Julia Gillard was demonstrably a good leader and an effective leader was from a position of minority government being able to very efficiently get a whole raft of legislation through the parliament, some of it quite substantial. Where she failed as a leader was that she wasn't a communicator's foot. She had a lot of trouble communicating to the public and tied herself up in knots at times. At that level, she was not a natural leader and that is fundamental to the role. Well, the, the question of natural leadership is extremely relative, Kerry, and the ability of someone to talk effectively, you know, with the right profile into a television camera and be persuasive is different from the ability of someone to inspire a room of people or to understand the best parts of policy and make them work. And but the if you can't bring a country with you, Peter, particularly in this age, you're buggered. Oh, well, we're I, buggered. Could, I, I couldn't agree more, but, uh, you know, l l let's open up the discussion. Let's, let's look at um, President Obama. You know, on the one level, an extremely effective leader and a visionary uh, and someone who had those gifts and those skills and someone that I strongly supported and yet who I think failed in his second term as a president. Was it because of his leadership or was it because of the events around him and the culture that he was dealing with, things of history and others of the like? It's not... I mean, I'm arguing for strong leadership, but it's always in a context. Well, I think we need to celebrate bravery because we've gotten to that point where I think many people are tied up in not because, knots because there's such a fear of failure because then there is this judgment that comes with failure. But you only ever succeed with great things if you're prepared to give it a go. And I know our Prime Minister always says, give it a go. Um, but as an ex-athlete, you know when you're on that start line that you have to be prepared to put it all on the line. And sometimes it will pay off and sometimes it won't. But when it does, it's absolutely unbelievable. So we can't have leaders that are afraid of failure, afraid of judgment. You will never regret the decisions you, and the actions that you try and take, even if they don't succeed, but you will regret the things you don't have the guts to try. So for all the naysayers, Time's up, but you've got, to, you've got to get out there. This is, not a, this is not an issue that will go away. It is only going to continue. So well done, everybody, for being here. And we are out of time. Uh, my congratulations to the organisers of this conference. It is more than timely, and the word emergency is writ large. Thank you all very much for your support, and would you please thank our terrific panel for the discussion today. This was a podcast from the 2020 National Climate Emergency Summit.